Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. So let's do this. Our guest today is James D. White. He is the former CEO of Jamba Juice, James is a transformational leader with more than 30 years experience as a CEO, an operating executive and board member in the consumer products, retail, and restaurant industries. As chair president and CEO of Jamba Juice, he transformed the company's DEI practices, resulting in a 500% increase in the company's market cap. He's also held senior executive positions at Safeway, Gillette, Nestle's Perina and served on more than 15 public and private boards and he's been a board director for more than 20 years. So James, welcome to the show. Mike, thrilled to be on with you today. So tell us about your book. The title of the book is Anti-Racist Leadership. Tell us why you decided to write this book in the first place. Mike, there's uh, uh, several reasons uh, uh, why the book project emerged and uh, not the least of which was the, the combination of the pandemic in 2020 and the, the global racial reckoning. I'd been advising CEOs and boards, working with my oldest daughter, Krista, who I ended up working on this project with. And as we looked at what was happening at the moment, we actually thought that we had something to say in stories uh, to share that might be helpful uh, to leaders uh, and, and companies. Uh, the book is a passion project. Uh, we hope to be uh, a fire starter or a catalyst for uh, discussions. The book is rich with uh, my 30 years of operating experience and 20 years in the boardroom. Uh, so a bit of the storytelling is uh, through my own experience Experience, but we also interviewed two dozen executives to try to bring to life best practices of big companies, small companies that give leaders the opportunity to build an anti-racist uh, culture, a more inclusive company. I'm going to push back just a little bit. So macro can also start, hopefully you agree with, let's say, a chairman of the board and a CEO who are aligned with goals that have nothing to do with the things that you and I are passionate about. And they might think their sales are great and the company's doing great and they're expanding across the world. And a, a George Floyd situation pops up, his fellow CEOs and board members are listening more, being more open-minded, humbled, open-hearted, looking to be educated. And let's just go through a scenario where you might be on a board and they might even be positioning you to be the chairman of the board, let's say, in a couple of years because they want to make change. But the chairman of the board and the CEO and maybe a couple of other members of both the C-suite and the board say, not here. 
How do you handle a situation like that where two or three powerful individuals are creating the culture, are creating the macro view because their leadership and culture is stamped in so many different places within the organization where race and being fair and equal, and even it can even include how they treat women and, and, and others inappropriately for decades, and they're not interested in change. I'd make a couple uh, points, Mike, I think. Uh, there is always work on a on a one on one basis to, you know, kind of influence and educate uh, people. I'm a proponent of that. I do a lot of that work these days. Probably, you know, called to do much more work with CEOs and boards and fellow board members just to educate them in the moment that we sit in uh, to today. Um, you know, as a as a leader, I've oftentimes counseled, advised fellow board members uh, to move them along. Uh, but you get to some points in time where you, you actually have to exit people to make the kind of change that you'd like to see in terms of the culture. I've done that as a CEO and executive, and not everybody's going to make the ride with you moving forward. But I think the most critical point that I'd make here that I think we've all learned in this moment is you've got some boards and some executives that are not built for this moment. Right. And I think the, the thing that is encouraging to me is we've got suppliers and consumers in this next generation of employees and associates that are going to hold us all into account differently. And that's one of the things that gives us a lot of optimism about this book. Because as we think about what the future of work might look like, uh, the future of work is going to require anti-racist leaders. So give me an example of that accountability that you're talking about. I, I like where you're going there with you know, future leaders and the next generation. I, I assume one of the things that you're highlighting now is the tipping point power of workers versus just five years ago. What is the data... Let's educate our audience. What is the data saying about the power of workers who might demand some of these changes when old school leaders might be thinking, yeah, I'm going to tiptoe towards it when they're seeking tipping point change, your workers and vendors and other partner relationships, not just locally, but around the world are demanding change now. Well, we got a chance to see in 2020 and 2021 employees uh, really gain leverage and really significant uh, power. And they actually started to hold uh, their leadership uh, accountable. And I think uh, with the prevalence kind of globally of uh, social networks and social media, you've got employees coming forward and they're holding as never before employers uh, accountable. And, and when they don't find the things that they need from an employer, they're moving. Um, and so we're talking about the great resignation and we're watching employees have more power in this moment than they've ever had before. This next generation of employees is really forcing management teams and CEOs and boards to be a lot more thoughtful in terms of how policies end up being administered. Workers' voices are brought into the boardroom and the C-suite. James, there might be some people who watch this episode who are 
of your generation who might be uh, older, who are at a tipping point in decision-making with their own career right now as to whether they dive into these issues or retire. Uh, I speak to some of them the same way that you speak to some of them as well. What are the attributes? Let's help them a little bit. If some of them are thinking, I might not have what it takes to do this and being honest with themselves, let's give them some of the attributes or bullet points of what a anti-racist leader actually looks like. And let's start with uh, a, a board member and then you can get into uh, what a CEO might need to look like too with some bullet points. I think the, the, the place that I always start is we've, we, we've got to have a learner's mindset. So I think we've got to be open to learning and growing is kind of the first place that I'd start. And one of the, the areas that my daughter focused on, we talked a lot about empathy. And there's a lot of discussion right now on empathy. And one of her questions was whether empathy could be learned. And the way I think about it is you want empathy where you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and translate that to compassion but where we sit today, Mike, this is really about action. You know, so you want to translate empathy to compassion to action in a meaningful, thoughtful way, knowing that this challenge is going to be one that will be across multiple years. And it's an ever-moving target, and we're going to have to put ourselves in a position uh, to, to be continual learners and to grow as it relates to the topic. Tell me more about your daughter. I'm very interested in her influence on you as a dad and as a leader herself. And we know the differences between generations, for example. There are some young leaders that are within C-suite environments with some older folks who are struggling with some of the issues we're talking about right now as young leaders that might be in their 30s and 40s, for example, who have big jobs in big organizations uh, when some of the people that they're dealing with on a daily basis are in their 60s and 70s, let's say. Uh, what are some of the bullet points that she highlighted from her generation's perspective that educated you that might also be eye-opening from an educational perspective for older leaders who might be struggling with just the understanding of the world today? I think just the, the, uh, the, the passion that she has a, around, um, you know, having an, a, a more inclusive environment where she can bring her whole self to work uh, and, and feel like she belongs. And she was really forceful as we thought about the title of the book to say, we, we can't play middle of the road. We actually have to stand for something. What were some of the working titles then? Besides settling on this one, where, where did you think maybe it might have been safer? Well, even the introduction of the uh, of, of the book, and I'll, I'll, I'll share a, a story. We had people on the project team and editing the project, and I had somebody to ask me, uh, James, do you care if you ever work again? I said, not really. And Krista probably did her greatest shaping, and if you don't mind, Mike, I'm going to take uh, sure. the liberty of just reading a bit of the, the intro of the book. Thank you. This, this book is not apolitical. This book is explicitly anti-racist, pro-black, pro-LGBTQ+, and feminist. This book takes the stance that Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ+, rights, are human rights, 
that people of all abilities deserve respect and access and that people of all genders have the right to sovereignty over their bodies and identities. This book acknowledges that capitalism is built on the foundation of systemic racism and that to have a truly diverse, equitable and inclusive work environment, we must acknowledge the historic and present injustices faced by marginalized people. Um, and and that, that sums up uh, really the power of this kind of intergenerational work that I had the, the great pleasure to do with my daughter. And I'm forever you know, grateful as a dad, I get actually emotional when I think about that opening. But Krista came to me and said, dad, with what's happening at this moment, I've got a new start, I think, for a book. And I thought about it overnight and came back and we reviewed it with the team. And somebody on the team said, well, James, do you care if you ever work again? I said, I don't. I mean, the, the world has changed dramatically. Uh, and we all get to make a different set of choices. And I make all the choices for boards and projects that I work on based on uh, the, the values and the missions of the organization. For me as a, a leader, 2020 was really important. This book project is a passion project, but my life work moving forward is to really drive for building more inclusive environments. This, this whole idea around anti-racist leadership is mission critical for everything that I work on uh, moving forward. So what you read to me, especially as a crisis guy, was very on point in, in my professional opinion and very hard hitting for some. Again, thinking from that board member or C-suite executive who is in his late 60s and 70s, who does want to try, but when they hear things like that, even though we're open to educating them, some might say, I have absolutely no experience in those areas whatsoever. And with a little bit of their heart opening up, admitting especially if they trust you as a fellow board member and you go out and you talk about it, and you're walking and talking and they are honest to say, I was raised in the exact opposite way of what you're describing. And I will even admit I've been able to get away with it until now. And it scares the heck out of me. In my mind, I've got bigger issues personally, like, am I going to stay two more years, three more years? I don't think I want to stay longer than that. And during those two to three years, do I really want to take this issue on? Or should I just retire today? What would you say to someone who was of that mindset? Because there's a lot of them. Yeah, Mike, and I've probably had three dozen of those conversations in 2020, much like you. And I'm, you know, excited to report that uh, I've, I've had folks that have kind of gone on the journey uh, with me. And, and my advice always is to start where you are. None of us have the, the perfect answer. You know, it's evidenced by my daughter, my 29-year-old, educating her dad. You know, so it's a learning journey for us all. And I think we need to, we need to start where we are and kind of take the journey. So I've watched individual executives go on that path or board members take themselves on that path. And I think what they 
what I found is they open themselves up to be a bit vulnerable and to, uh, and that's hard for senior executives and board members to do because we're supposed to have all the answers. But this is a topic that's moving. It'll be critically important to the running of our businesses, our roles in the boardroom as leaders. So it's going to be a capability that we're going to need to build. Social issues are becoming uh, inextricably linked to reputation of corporations. Mm -hmm. So this is a capability that actually has to be built if you're going to want to sit in the boardroom or the C-suite moving forward. You know, so my advice has been start where you are. It's a, you know, it's a bit of a journey, but take the journey because we're going to build better companies, better boardroom cultures and better organizations for it. You are, are involved with a couple of associations and groups that I've been advising stealthily. Uh, I can't say who they are, but I wanted to give an example that goes along with uh, some statistics that you know over the past few years, for example, there are more uh, black board members sitting in seats, not talk, not rhetoric, not promises, seats than ever before in history. I'm proud to be uh, one of many advisors who's uh, a part of that nexus of change. One of the pieces of advice that some of these older, mostly white, very powerful men who are struggling is kind of a tangent move that they're more comfortable with, even though they've never done it before, but they can be counseled to help others by actually giving up a seat. Some of them are still being asked this year, for example, to join new boards. And they're opening up to say, I don't necessarily want to take it. What do I do? Here's what you can do. You can sponsor a black man or a black woman to be in that seat. We can send you a dozen fully qualified people. And when it's time to vote, before it's time to vote, you tell your fellow board members this is something that you're passionate about that you want to do. And you want to help fill that choice as a sponsor with someone who absolutely deserves it and you agree to help them on their path for the next year or two to understand that role and support them in any way that you can. Instead of it being you, you could be a part of the change and have that even ego led a little bit, part of your legacy. Your legacy is you brought in five, six board members before you retired that you actually helped. Instead of changing your heart over the course of the next two to three years when you have already decided you're not gonna be here, start that change now, especially with seats before you re-up or any new ones that you're being asked to be on because we know if those seats aren't empty, the change is gonna take a lot longer to happen. So some of the strategy, smaller part, wish it was larger, that helped fill some of those seats over the last three years, especially, a lot of action over the last two, was that strategy in talking to more than a dozen board members who said, I didn't even know that was an option. And especially if I'm going to get support in how to sponsor them and mentor them, because I've never done it, I'm in. 
I want to get into some of the titles that are within your book that are excellent questions. So building an inclusive ecosystem, which goes along with that word culture as well. There are people who have absolutely no idea what that means. What does an inclusive ecosystem look like? Yeah, I think for us, we think about uh, all the ways that we might build more inclusive and diverse companies. And one of the most direct ways to have an impact on our employers, our supply base and our communities is to think about this, the supply chain and just look at you know, all the ways we procure goods to run our businesses and to ensure that you build more diversity in every aspect of your procurement practices. What we do in the book is we try to give tangible examples of, of organizations uh, that, that help companies and leaders think about building diversity uh, into their respective supply chains. There's an organization, uh, uh, Mike, that I'm sure you know and maybe have advised the Billion Dollar Roundtable. There's a set of some of the largest corporations that have made a commitment to invest a billion dollars uh, of spend uh, with diverse uh, companies. Uh, right. you know, so we talk a little bit about that. We give an example in the book of a technology company that made a priority to build a more diverse uh, supply chain really across everything that they do from content to talent. Logitech is one of the companies we talk about in the book there. CEO Bracken Darrell, who was a former colleague of mine, made a public statement around how he was moved in 2020 with the George Floyd murder uh, and really took it upon himself uh, to put on public display his commitment to change his organization. And to your point, what does that look like then uh, on a daily and weekly basis when meetings and decisions are being made consistently? Someone has to be the voice that is trusted and whispers in the ear. doesn't have to be a DEI officer in every single meeting because they're not going to be able to be in every single meeting, quite frankly, to be able to say to the board or the C-suite or the decision makers or the hiring managers, Remember, our mantra now is, it doesn't look like the world. It doesn't look like where we, and the phrase I like to use to remind them is three bullets, where you are headquartered, operate, and serve. If you think from that perspective, you got to be looking at that data holistically. Not with a spun number, not combining categories, saying, wow. And then thinking open-mindedly about the color green what do you mean we're really not doing anything in the entire continent of Africa? What do you mean you have some type of a freelance relationship with or a, a small partner relationship with an organization that does what you do there? And it's and it's a 10-year relationship and it really hasn't, you know, fostered any any growth. How often do you go there? What are you talking about? Why is it still? And then when you talk about emerging markets. But we've been in troublesome, war-torn countries for generations. Russia, China, Korea, I can go on and on that you considered emerging markets. 
for years that had much bigger problems. It's a fear of something you don't know. So I guess the question is, how do you establish a culture where that not just a DEI specialist, not just the only black executive, not just the only Latino executive, not only the only person that is gay or disabled or special needs or different, that someone raises their hand or whispers in an ear in every meeting, we can't do it that way anymore. Even the panel you're putting together, it's six white, you can't do that anymore. Is it a shareholder who has to speak up and a shareholder needing to constantly hit a hand? Or is it going to be an environment in which that tipping point change in every single meeting says we have to look at where we reside, operate, and serve? And I think it's a, it's a couple things for me. It's, it's, it's the policies and processes and what you want to do is really might bake the principles that you talked about into the DNA of the company, because what you, you want is for the change to be sustained beyond you sitting on the board or me sitting on the board or us being in the, in the C-suite at the company. The best companies are really looking uh, at, at how we promote and how we acquire talent and who our suppliers are, and they're driving it into the really the DNA of the company. But one of the best uh, indicators of, you know, sustainable d diversity and kind of social good in companies is the representation. We can't get away from that. We've got we, we've to have a board and a, and a leadership team that looks like uh, the world and the communities that we do business uh, in. And I think uh, at the end of the day, that's one of the things that ends up being critically important. I saw another interview where you talked about the sadness of these issues being tied to politics today. The same way that issues of the pandemic and health safety with some is tied to politics of why they're not going to get a shot. Um, this would be why I'm not going to change who I am and what I've done for years. When you're dealing with someone or an organization that is so inbred with that kind of thinking, it makes it that much more difficult. How have you been able to push through the politics on top of the policies in some of these discussions? Well, I think you, you, you certainly have to bring uh, data. Uh, you know, f fortunately, I've got a, a broad enough set of experience that brings a bit of credibility to the discussion, but you, you play through it. And then I think in some situations, some people are not going to change. And if you're in a position to have them exit the board of the organization, that might be the most thoughtful and kind decision for everybody involved for there to be an exit. But in most cases, you're a peer in the boardroom and it's going to be influence and influencing uh, really across the board to try to drive uh, more thoughtful change. Have you ever used a personal example to open a heart in talking to some of the leaders that you're discussing right now? Um, 
when I find difficulty in data points and best practices and other examples that aren't super personal for some of these folks, a small percentage have their heart changed and open to try by sometimes me talking about a personal example or learning about a personal example in that person's life where it makes them see the entire issue differently. I'd share one example that I hadn't shared before 2020. You know, so for me as a 20 year old, uh, first member of my family to graduate from college, so first member of my family to have a professional uh, job, I start my career at the Coca-Cola company and, and my sales territory uh, had the headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan in oh the state gosh. of Arkansas. So that had to be removed from my territory. And when I, when I share that story, it gives people pause to wow. think that this young man, this is where he started his career. And he, you know, and by all accounts, I've had a pretty successful career. But if I looked at a peer, a white peer that started his or her career in sales in the consumer goods industry that didn't have that, those are, those are slightly different paths. And I've, I've shared some of those kinds of stories uh, with people that you'd never think of. Well, I have two more questions, sir. The first one is, if you had to summarize your book into the three most important takeaways, what would they be? I think the uh, really most critical takeaways are the, the future is actually now, and the future, the future of work is going to require anti-racist leaders. We're going to have to get it. We've got a, a generation of employees and workers and, importantly, consumers that are going to hold us all accountable to finding a more constructive way to live in this more diverse world. And I'm optimistic because there's leaders and companies uh, that are starting to create and reimagine the future, and they're building their companies uh, in this way. And we talk about uh, some of those future companies and leaders uh, in the book. Let's get emotional with the last question. So we're still in the midst of a pandemic. The world is changing all around us. I was asked this question at the very beginning of the pandemic. We worked with a lot of health organizations and corporations that, of course, were growing through hell and making some big decisions over the past couple of years. And a CEO was vulnerable enough to say this to me after I was giving him statistics of how many people of color, especially black, were dying. And as you and I know, at one point it was four times the rate of whites. He almost cried and said, I don't have a relationship with the 2% people of color who work for me. How do I start now? You've touched my heart. I feel vulnerable, but I don't know what to do. If you were asked that by a fellow board member and utilizing some of the principles of your book, you know that heart is open, you don't want it to close, you know they're afraid, how do they get to know people that they've never dealt with before and they were raised and taught for so many years? That's not for you. I think for me, first, I'd, I'd offer a hand. 
just personally, and I've done that as I'm sure you have, I break bread, bring them into my home as a starting point, but I would encourage them to, to really look at their own lives and the clubs they belong to and the people they spend time with and just use that as a, you know, a learning uh, opportunity. I'd, I'd encourage them um, to read and do their own research and to have a bit of a self-guided, but also to engage others. I've uh, seen CEOs that as they take themselves, executives on this journey, they bring in speakers for their organizations, but they do it for themselves as well. Um, yes. You know, I shared an earlier example where this good friend of mine brought me in. He brought in a series of probably a dozen black executives in 2020 to be able to look at the different sets of experiences. And, the, and these were all people that were very successful, but he was able to pull stories like mine out of those sessions. And that builds empathy back to the point of empathy to develop compassion and hopefully leaders, you know, find places where they can take specific actions. And what I would say, the, the actions can be small or large, uh, but take some action. Excellent point. Well, James, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. The name of the book is Anti-Racist Leadership. It will be available for pre-order right now. So please go and pre-order the book. You will be receiving it sometime towards the end of the third week of March. We got him early. We got him to be emotional with us. We got him to share some of the most important points of the book. And James, thank you so much. Please tell also your daughter, Krista. We thank her for her wisdom in not only sharing her wisdom within the book, but sharing her dad with us as well. So we greatly appreciate that. Mike, thank you. Uh, grateful. Thanks so much. And our t-shirt for this episode is read diverse books, share diverse stories, support diverse writers, publish diverse authors, boost diverse voices. Of course, we want more and more voices to educate us in the literary world and Thank you, James and Krista, for your book in doing so. A reminder for us all. So my rep doc opinion about this episode, leaning in from a crisis perspective on a program called Reputations in Crisis, that we know that when we're behind closed doors, we have to move beyond the rhetoric and it's difficult because we know there are those, sadly, that are racist, that are prejudiced, that do not want to do anything or just as bad want to do the minimum. A scholarship here or there, an investment of a couple thousand dollars to have a CYA cover your ass strategy to just do the minimum and not really care about change. My opinion, we need to be asking for the seats of those. And I love the way James says, instead of using the word firing, he says, exit them, help them to be exited. I agree. There are many that need to be exited 
who are out of touch, who have no interest in changing. We need those board seats. We need those C-suites. We need more senior executives of color, especially black, and quite frankly, black men, which is the category within corporate America that is most sadly in crisis. And thank you for watching another episode of Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Rep Doc. And remember, less head work, more heart work, peace. And please follow us on their YouTube channel and listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Have a terrific week. We'll see you soon.